15, Acts chapter 15, as we continue through this <coughs> great and marvelous book, one of my favorite books in the Bible is the book of Acts because it's an action book. That's why it's called Acts. The Acts of the Apostles really could be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit because that's who's at work here. But I love uh, this book. It's so full and uh, so rich, <coughs> so many great examples for us. I've often said that our, our uh, guide for faith and practice comes from the Bible, and we see that both in, in actual direct commands <coughs> and then also by example. And, of course, the book of Acts gives us a lot of those examples of people who are serving the Lord faithfully. Uh, I love, one of the things I love to do is to attend different pastors' conferences. It's always a great time of uh, not only encouragement, but a great time of learning for me. And, and uh, the way that some professions do train-up sessions and, and uh, do uh, refresher courses in their field, whether it be medicine or law enforcement, whatever it is, that's kind of what preachers need too. And I, so I love to go to these different uh, pastors' conferences tonight. I want to look at maybe, in the early church, the very first pastor's conference, and I've entitled the message tonight, the Prickly Pastor's Conference, because that's kind of what it was, and we'll look at it this evening in Acts chapter 15. Uh, we're going to begin reading in chapter number, uh, verse number 1, and certain men, which came down from Judea, taught the brethren, and said, except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other number of them, or certain other of them, <coughs> should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenice and Samaria, uh, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. And when they were coming to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all the things that God had done with them. But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees, which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider of this matter. That's where I find this conference. Verse 7, And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up, and said unto them, Men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now, we're talking there about Cornelius when he went and preached to Cornelius and the sheet and all those things that came down and that lesson that Peter learned. And verse 8, And God which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, <coughs> even as he did unto us. And put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. Then all the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. And after, that they, held, after they had held their peace... James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon had declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take them out of them a people for his name. Father, I pray you'd help us now in the next few minutes here. A lot to go over in this passage, but I pray that we could 
uh, take some practical lessons from it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What we see here as the chapter opens is false doctrine. Certain men came down from Judea. They taught the brethren and said, Except you be circumcised after the Moses, a manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. These certain men were almost certainly the same certain men that Paul talks about that came from James in Galatians chapter 2. Their teachings and desire to infiltrate the Gentile churches would obviously bother Paul a lot. Perhaps they had already uh, turned some minds at Galatia. Uh, visitors from the Jerusalem church would be welcome in Antioch or anywhere. You have to remember that at this time, the Jerusalem church was still seen as the mother church, kind of the, the main one, the one that where, where it started it all. It would retain a lot of respect. The church had been born there. This is where the original apostles had lived. Even Paul, it seems, felt that pull of Jerusalem. Now, James was the pastor back in Jerusalem, and he was also very highly respected. He was known for his strict and holy living. He was a very flesh-denying type of person, and he had written the first of the New Testament epistles. Uh, this was already in circulation among the Jews at that time, and so for the visitors to arrive from that church uh, to Antioch, from James and the Jerusalem church, <coughs> would cause quite a stir. Uh, they would be welcomed with open arms, as we can imagine, because of the respect that people had for Jerusalem. Jewish members of the Antioch church would give them hospitality. Uh, they, would, uh, they would invite them over to their homes, and they would host them for meals. Now, if the Gentile members of the church did the same, that's when the trouble began. These certain men, the Bible refers to, refused social contact with the Gentile believers. They refused to sit at the Lord's table with them. When asked why, they said it was because these Gentiles had not been circumcised. They did not keep the ritual of the law. So according to them, verse 1, they're not even saved, and they wouldn't fellowship with them. Now, this caused a big blow-up, understandable. This is a direct attack on salvation by faith and faith alone. It was an attack on the fellowship of saints and the oneness of the body of Christ that they had heretofore enjoyed. It was all the more dangerous because it was very conceivable. Anybody who was Jewish could easily be convinced of this because of their long history of obeying the law and being judged by the law and all these things. So they really had a, a crowd that was probably open to their message. Furthermore, it would appeal to the Jewish crowd because apparently James was behind it. Now we know later James is not going to be behind it or, or he wasn't even at this point, but they don't know that now and it makes no difference anyway. Uh, Churchill said that a lie goes around the world before truth has a chance to put its pants on. Uh, great truth, isn't it? And so it doesn't really even matter what James thinks at this point. They're there spreading this garbage of uh, this false doctrine, and people are falling for it. Now, when you have any kind of false teachers or dissidents in the church, truth is not really the issue. It is how much damage they can do in the meantime. One draw of this false doctrine that's being taught here to the Jewish listeners might be that it would be a way to balance the uh, power of all these Gentiles infiltrating the church. And so bef before 
Uh, we, we see Paul, I, I know this had to bother Paul, we see throughout this passage how much this bothered Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, so much so that before convening the Jewish council in verse number 6, <coughs> the common consensus is that between verse 1 and between verse 6, Paul wrote the book of Galatians. And he wrote that letter to Galatia to try to offset this false teaching that's going on. Uh, one way that they come up with that and is that it, there's really no way to account for Paul's silence about this council in the Galatia epistle because he talks about everything up to that point. Now imagine the shockwave that this teaching would send through the Gentile segment of the church. All of a sudden, you're a second-class citizen. All of a sudden, you're not as good as the Jewish members. And uh, maybe some of these Judaizers were converted priests. He talks about them in Acts chapter 6. <clears throat> so it would add weight to the argument. And it was a dire message. Imagine if you're a Gentile and you hear this message, except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. I mean, think about that. Think if somebody came in here and all of a sudden started preaching that you really aren't saved after all because you haven't met these certain requirements. In other words, what they were saying is you have to become a Jew before you become a Christian. So this caused a furious debate. In verse 2, when therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them. These two missionaries immediately locked horns with the cultists. By the way, that's what has to happen. Whenever there's false teaching in the church, it has to be dealt with and dealt with quick. Uh, these, there was an issue here that allowed for absolutely no compromise. So it does not matter who they were, doesn't matter where they're from, doesn't matter how much they, uh, clout they had, they were not going to be allowed to teach this false doctrine. Now the Bible uses two words to describe Paul's method here. It says they had no small dissension with them. Uh, the word for dissension is stasis. It literally means disagreement or insurrection. The same word is used to describe Barabbas. Remember Barabbas, that uh, criminal? Uh, when it says in Luke 23, 19, who for a certain sedition made this in the city was cast into prison. Sedition, stasis, dissension. All that uh, same meaning. So Paul saw this false doctrine in its true light, which was an insurrection, high treason against God. That's what this false teaching was. He dealt with it accordingly. Paul did not allow these intruders to get away with a thing. The Judaizers were convinced that they were right. Paul was equally convinced that they were wrong. The Judaizers regarded Paul as a heretic, and it's obvious Paul regarded them as the same. So this debate raged on. But what I want to point out is that this would be a time of confusion and discouragement in that church. And it just breaks my heart whenever I see any church, whether it be in the Bible or in our present day, when it's wrapped up in this type of behavior because this is exactly what Satan wants. I mean, they're winning souls, they're growing, people are being added to the church, but you don't see that now. This is, Paul, uh, this is Satan's response to Paul's evangelism. Division in the church. Paralyze the, the church with strife. Uh, putting the church on defensive. Turning believer against believer. It is no accident that we here in chapter 15 don't see any souls saved. 
We don't see any plans for further mission work. We don't see the Holy Spirit at work. Evangelism has come to a halt. Conflict is one of the devil's favorite tactics against a church. And he'll do it whenever he can. Uh, mix it up. And I tell you, when we have conflict, we're not getting the work of God done. We're not getting the, the, the work of God is not going forward when a church is fraught with conflict. And Satan knew, even back then, you don't have to imprison the church leaders if you can make the church impotent. And that's exactly what was happening here. Now, we see not only a furious debate, but a fair decision. Look at verse 2. They determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain one other of them should go up to Jerusalem and to the apostles and elders about this question. <coughs> so, Peter was also in Antioch at this time, as we learn from the book of Galatians, and he did play a part in this affair. When he first came to Antioch, uh, we learn there that he freely fellowshiped with all the believers, Gentile and Jewish alike. You remember what happened then? We went through Galatians a while back, and then all of a sudden, uh, these false teachers came to, uh, to, uh, to, to Antioch, and they uh, started to give Peter a hard time because he was fellowshipping with the Gentiles. Even Barabbas felt the pressure to follow Peter's example. Boy, you be careful whenever anybody tries to teach that there are certain people you shouldn't be fellowshipping with. Or these people are below us. Uh, we are higher up than they are. That's not, that's not the way the Lord thinks. Uh, Jesus died so that all might be saved. He's willing that none should perish. And the conflict, though, was so serious now that they decided to take it to Jerusalem, let the apostles and elders there decide this issue. Now, I don't know how Paul felt about this, but he was probably not that optimistic because he probably knew where their sympathies might lie. And again, uh, there seems to be a conception here that James is going to be on the side of these Judaizers. Remember, James, I think the word is uh, uh, atheism or asceticism, maybe, where you deny the flesh, is that right it is, ascetic, an ascetic, and that's what James was. And so uh, he would be prime candidate, they would think, for this uh, legalistic type of thinking. Then we see the faithful delegates. And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenice and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy among all the brethren. I like this because on the way back, <coughs> they're not stopping giving the message. They, there's these groups of Christians on their way back to Jerusalem, probably those that fled Jerusalem uh, after the stoning of Stephen. And so they, uh, probably these congregations were started by uh, Hellenistic Jews. They would be more open-minded than the con con uh, congregations that were started by the more conservative Hebrew Christians. And so now they're going through and giving the good news of what God's doing. By the way, I don't know if it's, maybe I'm, thinking weird, but it's a little refreshing to me to see even in the Bible times, even in the early church, they had these little issues and they had to work these things out. You know, that's not new, these different factions of Baptists that we have today, and this college won't get with that college, and this, I think it's, it's unfortunate, but certainly isn't new. We see that Paul didn't for a second keep quiet about the conversion of all these Gentiles. The more people that would get enthusiastic about it, the better. And so he is sharing with them what God's doing among the Gentiles. He also had an eye for the future. He wanted the Jewish people and Gentiles, he wanted the church, to encourage Jewish Christians to break from their traditionalist thinking, but he wanted the whole church 
to take on the Great Commission for themselves. Don't forget, and of course he doesn't know this now, but in six years, Paul's going to be arrested. In 12 years, Nero is going to start persecuting all out the Christians and just declare open war against them. And it's high time that Christians start thinking about evangelizing the Gentile world. That was Paul's heart, and that's what he was trying to share here. But I like the fact that he's not intimidated. He's heading back to have this discussion about the Gentiles, but on the way, he's letting everybody know about the Gentiles getting saved because he uh, knows that that's an exciting thing. All right, final destination. Verse 4, they came to Jerusalem. They were received of the church and of the apostles and elders and declared all the things that God had done with them. You feel in that verse the lack of enthusiasm. Look at the verse before. They caused great joy in all the brethren. They came to Jerusalem, you don't see that at all. They gave the missionaries a hearing, that was it. This is Paul's third visit to Jerusalem since his conversion. There is, we know, a deep-seated dislike for him among some of the people there. Uh, he's too smart, he's too liberal, he's too zealous, whatever the reasons they would like to give. Now Barnabas, which is more acceptable than Paul was to those Judaizer-type thinkers, uh, because is also under suspicion because of his association with Paul. You wonder how John Mark felt about all this. Uh, the story of their exploits, all that God was doing through them. I wonder if he regretted quitting when he did. Knowing Barnabas, he would try to rekindle the fire. It seems that he does, because later in this very chapter, he's going to try to encourage Paul to include Barnabas or, or Mark on the next trip. And then uh, look at the verse 5. But there rose up a certain sect of the Pharisees, which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them <coughs> and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now, Pharisees, it's easier for a Pharisee to believe than a Sadducee. Because Pharisees believed in the resurrection. Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They were sad, you see. That's how you remember that. Okay? They didn't believe in the resurrection. But, so all Pharisees had to do was to add to their belief that the resurrection of Jesus was the proof of his Messiahship. But, as often happens, when Pharisees converted to Christianity, they had a really hard time losing their legalistic thinking. You know, our life before salvation sometimes follows us after salvation, and it did for the Pharisees. Now, Paul himself, remember, he was a Pharisee before he was saved, so he would know well their narrow-minded thinking. And if these stubborn Pharisees had their way, then the, and Christianity would just become another Jewish sect. Now we move on to number six. Here's the pastor's conference. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider this matter. The date of the conference was set. It's a big day for the future of Christianity. Failure to reach the right decision would forever split the church. No doubt, I, well, I would think there's no doubt, the apostles would realize the gravity of this decision. Uh, think about what it would mean for us even today if they would have made the wrong decision. And so it was no light decision they were faced with. Many of them were awed by Paul, no doubt, but at the same time they were intimidated by these Judaizers and legalists in the church. The opinion of James would be crucial to the debate. And James, remember, would be inclined to be a legalist. This is at least what seemed to be their thinking. First, Peter speaks, verse number 7. 
When there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said to them, men and brethren, well, we'll look at what he says in a moment. He was the first to speak. No one in Jerusalem could speak with more authority. He was acknowledged as the apostle to the circumcision, Galatians 2, 7 and 8. So Peter was the apostle to the Jews, to the circumcision. So when he rose to his feet, I wonder if the legalists weren't thinking, here we go. Now he'll speak on our behalf. He'll talk on our side. No doubt he'll uh, speak for the Jewish equation of this debate. But remember, Peter had learned his lesson. We talked about that when he met Cornelius. Paul, in Galatians uh, two, chapter 2, had already withstood him to the face. Now, the Bible does not tell us what Paul and Peter uh, exactly was said. We know what they discussed. We don't know exactly what was said. But whatever it was, <coughs> Peter was not going to straddle the fence on this issue anymore. He knew that Paul was right. And we have a fantastic message from Peter here in this short speech he made. I don't, I'd like to break it down more, but we could spend weeks on just that message that he gave. But this is Peter at his very best. He wisely waited until both sides aired their views. You can imagine that there was a lot of emotion at this meeting, a lot of hotheads. There would be probably some shouting. There would be some arguing because that's what churches do sometimes, unfortunately, and that's what we see here. It would not be a quiet debate. Passions were high on both sides of the issue. There would be personal attacks. There would be personal bias displayed. Again, there always is in cases like this. At last, Peter stood up. Now, I wonder, I have a lot of speculation here, so I may be off base, but I just wonder certain things throughout this. What's Paul thinking when Peter stands up? We know they had it out already. Did he know what Peter was going to say? Uh, did he learn his lesson? Peter began, Men and brethren, you know that what a Good while ago, God made a choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us. His message is there's not the slightest difference between the Jews and the Gentile in giving the Holy Spirit. That was Peter's point. The undeniable sign of the baptism of the Holy Spirit was given to the Gentiles as freely as it was given to the Jews. And if circumcision was that important, the Holy Spirit would have said so. If God did not demand circumcision, if the Mosaic law was not required by God as a supplement to Gentile salvation, how dare anyone add them now? This is where Paul went, whew, <laughs> breathed his sigh of relief, maybe, if he was worried at that point. He, his heart must have warmed to Peter like never before. What a man Peter was. Look at verse 9. And put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. It was faith, not works, that saved. This is what Peter was saying. And he was now clearly speaking on Paul's side. The whole issue had been decided for Peter when he had that... Uh, that uh, that connection with Cornelius, when the sheet came down and when God told him to eat and then he said, not so, Lord. Remember those words? Not so, Lord. You can't say that. It's either not so or it's Lord. You can't say not so, Lord, um, because it's one or the other. And so he had already 
decided this in his heart. Oh man, to see the faces of the Pharisees, or the ex-Pharisees at this point. They had expected better things from Peter. But the Holy Spirit was in control of this day, I think. Uh, We can see that through this passage. And he's the one that's prompting Peter to speak as he did. Now verse 10, he goes further. Why therefore tempt ye God to add conditions to God's plan of salvation that God had not added, friend, is a serious matter, and it still is. We don't add anything to the gospel plan of salvation. Let the Judaizers beware, he says. God was not on their side. God is on the side of freedom, not on the side of bondage. He says, he goes on in verse 10, Why tempt you God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? The law had been an intolerable burden. The Sabbath restrictions alone would be a weight impossible to bear. Just read, look them up sometime. You can find these things online, but just the Sabbath rules were ridiculous. Traditions and regulations, because it's a religion, are being added all the time. Religion is fluid. It's not static. The Bible is settled. Religion is not. They're constantly changing things and adding things. Uh, And and so that's the nature of religion. So Jesus described these traditions as heavy burdens and grievous to be born. Matthew 23, 4. Now why should the church put on anyone's shoulders the yoke of the law? Jesus had set them free from it. That's Peter's point here. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Salvation is by grace, not of the law. The law says, this do and thou shalt live. Grace says, live and then do this. Law put the load on man. Grace put the load on Christ. And that's important that we realize these two are not compatible. You, um, the, the, you can't have law and grace. It's got to be law or grace. And Peter is making that very, very clear. In fact, Peter is sounding more and more like Paul as the more he talks here. Uh, this, this, by the way, is where the practice started. In the, it's in the Greek here. I'm telling, you just have to dig a little bit. This is where the practice started of saying amen. When Paul said amen to what Peter was saying. Just speculation. All right. Then Barnabas and Paul speak. Uh, the multitudes kept silent uh, and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul. Peter's argument was unanswerable. A silence fell on the congregation. I wonder if some of it wasn't shock at what Peter said. Then Barnabas stood up. It, it's interesting here. It says Barnabas and Paul. Usually the Bible says Paul and Barnabas, but here it says Barnabas and Paul. I think this was a little diplomacy in Barnabas taking the lead because he was far more an in of the Jerusalem crowd than Paul could ever be. So Barnabas told the story of their mission. Barnabas told the story of all that was happening, and Paul uh, confirmed it and added details. Every word of what they said was confirmation of Peter's argument that salvation was by grace and not works. Now look at verse 13. And I'm not going to go through the whole thing of what James says, but just starting after they had held their peace, James answered. There would be another silence after Paul and Barnabas were done. Now James speaks that uh, you would think here 
such a record of miracles and conversions would have brought the house down, but it doesn't seem to have affected them at all. If people can't get excited about souls getting saved and churches growing, something is wrong with your heart. And that was the case here. Instead, they held their peace. There was silence. James took advantage of this silence. He rose. Every eye would be on him. I think we miss the gravity of this moment if we just pass over this. Paul might have felt another moment's doubt. The legalists in the crowds and the crowd here might have felt their hopes rise. What would James say? What would James, uh, would he side with Paul or would he side with the uh, legalists? In fact, James was their last hope now that Peter had thrown in with Paul. The discernment of James became evident with his first word. Verse 14, after he says, Men and brother, hearken unto me. He says, Simeon. He uses the old, Peter's old Hebrew name. He brings everyone's attention back to this charismatic figure so well known in Jerusalem. The man that God had used to start the Jerusalem church. I think that was very tactful of James. He says, Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. James discerned an interesting fact in Peter's visit to the house of Cornelius. God was now at work among the Gentiles, calling out of the Gentile world a people for him. That's, this is the essence of the church, ecclesia. A called out people. That's what the word church means. Ecclesia in the Bible. Schofield said, God has never anywhere converted everybody. But everywhere he has called out some. Wherever you go, there are God's people. Uh, there are some there. This calling out process started at Pentecost with the Jews. It was extended by Peter in the house of Cornelius to the Gentiles, and the work of taking out a people for his name has been going on ever since. Wherever uh, God is at work. Those called out ones is the church. James called it. He, there is no more appropriate description of the church in the New Testament than what he's saying here. Call, take them out a people uh, take out of them a people for his name. And we'll talk more next week about James's message or his part of it here. But this chapter, I believe, what we've talked about so far tonight, stresses the importance fighting for the truth. Upholding doctrine is very important in the church. It's in, what we believe is very important. Hey, we like excitement, we like to sing, we like to fellowship, do all those things, but the teaching of the Word of God and doctrine that, it, that comes from the Bible, it's an important thing to hold fast to that. James chapter 3, verse 17, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable. It's important that we have the purity of the gospel and the Bible as our guiding light in the church. It's our duty to do what it tells us to do in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21. Prove all things, hold fast to that which is good. And I'm grateful.
to the heroes of the faith, even in the early church, who have done just that. And ever since then, in every generation, you've had people holding fast to the truth. We're recipients of it. We see it in our Bible, but not only uh, long after the Bible was complete, throughout the centuries, faithful people have held fast to the truth. That is an important part of what we need to do at Bible Baptist Church as well. Hold fast to the doctrinal truths of the Word of God. It is important what we believe, and it needs to line up <clears throat> with the Word of God and the Bible. Amen? Uh, that's why I always, I'm a big B Baptist. I am a Baptist by conviction. I believe that you can go to heaven and not be a Baptist. But why, if you can go first class, do it. Amen? Uh, I'm a big B Baptist, but I like it that our church has the word Bible in front of the word Baptist. Because before I'm a Baptist, I'm a Biblicist. And I'm a Baptist because I believe it aligns closest with the Bible. But the Bible is my guiding principle, and it has to be ours for our faith and practice. And so it's important to keep the doctrine pure and right. And I'm glad they had this conference, and I'm glad that it turned out the way it did because truth prevailed. And uh, the Judaizers were eventually shut down as they should have been. And truth won the day. And it needs to continue. Father, we thank you for...